This is Aspiring Altruists, the show where you'll hear the stories of young professionals in the nonprofit sector working to change the world. We'll dive into their backgrounds, hear about the work they do, and ultimately learn how they got to where they are and how you can do the same. With the nonprofit sector comprising one of the largest U.S. workforces by tackling the world's biggest problems across nine major categories, you may just hear something that could change your life, and through it, the lives of countless others. On today's show, we'll be hearing from a young woman who has a passion for equity in food systems, Eilish Zembilji. Eilish is the program manager for global food security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's a systems-based thinker who values holistic, interdisciplinary approaches to complex challenges. In her role, she works with grants and fundraising, writes and edits content, works with interns, and builds key relationships with those inside and outside of the organization. But Eilish has much more to share, so let's hear from her. So Eilish, you've worked for a number of different roles already in your career and within your current organization. Share with us more about your career journey thus far. This is a, a great question because I had previously listened to your episode with Desmond Jordan at USIP. And I thought his he had a, an answer. You asked a similar question and he said, oh, you know, well, after I graduated, I had a hard time finding a job and I had done everything right. And I think that for me was super relatable. And I feel like right now, especially for a lot of folks who were coming on the end of their like academic career or thinking about a transition and COVID hit, it's been tough to, to find a job. I've spoken with quite a number of folks at different points in, in their career trajectory. And, you know, I, I think for me, I, I guess I'd call it non-traditional, uh, but I don't even think that that's a qualification worth using. I don't really think there's any such a thing as a traditional route to get to a career in a nonprofit sector. You know, if you're going to do it, if you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer, there's obviously a set path that you need to take. But I moved to DC for my undergraduate degree. And at that time I thought I was going to go on to, to pursue a career in environmental law. Mm. Um, and what I do today is is not quite that, but it's also not that different. Uh, and once I got to DC, I realized that there were a lot of things that I, I cared a lot about that I could work on in food and agriculture. And so the majority of my time at George Washington University, though pursuing a degree or a degree in international affairs rather and uh, sustainability and global health, was a lot of domestic community-based agriculture food system work. Uh, was teaching food system classes throughout DC uh, schools, both charter and public. Uh, I was doing some uh, festival coordinating for Sweetgreen, a pretty big company here that used to do a music festival. And so it was a lot of different things. And then I that whole experience for me ended with a, a full-time internship at the Senate. I really thought that the policy angle was something that was missing for me. And I enjoyed my time there. It was a really fantastic way to get exposed to, to policy and how policy is created and the research that goes into it and what it's like to even work on the Hill. But I was also there at a time when the administration was going through a transition. And so as a member of the minority staff for the Senate Agriculture Committee, there was not space for me to stay on. And so I had to take a job with a, a, a local, well, not had to, I took a job with a local catering company in, in Northeast DC who does, who did everything that I valued in terms of food systems, in terms of 
the way things were sourced or the the way in which they hired people. It was a, a really well-run small business. And really for the majority of the time there, I was planning weddings, which was not where I saw myself being at all, right? I right. have so much respect for folks who plan weddings. I will, I never want to return to that ever again. Hmm. Um, it's just not my cup of tea. However, that was almost without a doubt, the most formative experience for me. And I, I really attribute that time to being what makes me successful in my role. And so that when I say non-traditional, I mean, I took a, a almost, I'd say a gap year. I worked there for two years, trying to find a way to get back into the policy space, work in food and agriculture in really any capacity. And it was hard. It was hard to find a job. It was hard to not be demoralized. It was really tough when we work and live in many ways, especially in DC, in a society in which we allow ourselves to attach our self-worth to what we think success is, especially mm. after you graduate undergrad, right? Where you think um, all these people have job offers. I'm still trying to find a job. You know, like Desmond said, I've done everything right. Why, why am I not good enough? And it's really not about that. And so for me, you know, I'm thankful that as much as I really didn't like planning weddings and as much as it was really challenging work for me, that's where I refined skills that I couldn't do the role that I'm in right now at CSIS as a program manager for the Global Food Security Program, truly a dream job in every sense of the word, um, without having taken that, that time working in something that I really didn't, for me, was was almost, I had attributed it almost to failure, right? It was hmm. distinctively not what I wanted to be doing, but it was so valuable in, in the way it, it really refined skills for me to be able to take on the job that I have now. Hmm. Yeah, that is definitely something that is a valuable lesson for anybody out there, any young adult, is that uh, your career path that you think you'll have is probably not the one you're going to have. And oftentimes that turns out to be exactly what you needed because the things that you don't expect are often the places that you learn the most from. For me, before I got into the nonprofit sector here a few years ago, I was working, uh, talk about food systems, working for a produce distribution company. And that was somewhere for me, I thought that's where I was supposed to be. It matched my major, those kind of things. And then after a couple of years, I was just like, this is not it, but I'm not sure where to go next. So mm -hmm. I had that, that non-traditional path as well. So there's certainly a lot of different ways to get to where you want to go. And I know, yeah, that early career period is definitely the time of bouncing around and kind of figuring out as you go along. You really said it. And, and your experience truly is never a waste, right? I mean, my grandfather always used to say your education is never a waste. And I, I believe that every experience that you have is a, is a form of education. If I had just written off my time with the catering company as oh, you know, a, a failure or just something that mm, it's not important, it's not contributing to my success. I don't think I would have been able to approach my position at CSIS with the level of confidence to do this job well. I still am planning events and managing calendars and I have a external facing role in many capacities. So customer service is a huge piece of that. And those are things that I 
did all in that role. And so when I, I chat with folks who, especially individuals who may go to universities that are not in the Beltway and want to work here, right? Mm. I, I grew up in Wisconsin and internships, depending on the university, are not necessarily baked in to the experience. And that mm. might be you're not in a place where there's like a capacity to host a great amount of res- uh, internships, or you need to work throughout your time at university. Mm. And it's, 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 it's a very significant amount of privilege that I know I enjoyed that I did not have to work a part-time job that would fill the other hours I had outside of classes. So I could pursue internships or this or that. But I don't think that folks need to think, oh, well, I'm not, I can't compete with someone who had an internship because I had to work. That's totally not true. It's mm. just about, I had to, maybe you were waiting tables, you were doing this, you were doing that. All of those same skills, like what I had at the catering company, that's customer service, that's time management, that's juggling a job while managing a full course load. I mean, those are huge assets to any employer who are who's looking at you like, can I count on you to manage multiple competing priorities? Can you manage your time effectively to get these things done? And that is something that you can showcase as a part of an internship or as a part of working at a local restaurant or working for literally any other company throughout your time pursuing your degree or otherwise. And I think that that's so important when, especially now where folks are thinking, our COVID has taken over, Zoom University, I'm burnt out. How can I showcase that this is something I wanna be doing? That there's so many different ways to articulate your skill set that you don't have to be worried about having the best type of internship and so on. It helps, but it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be the only way to pursue what you want to do. Yeah, lots of lots of different pathways. And I know for yours, as you're talking about your pathway, the winding way you've led through and uh, gotten really focused on, as you described, food systems, where does that passion for you come from for that area specifically? I love this question because it's really not just one thing, but if I had to, had to choose the necessary ingredients to, to, for that passion, uh, on one hand, it, it would be just growing up and the, the community that I enjoyed with family around meals. And that wasn't a constant for me. Uh, my parents are divorced. And so the, some of the best memories that I have are around holidays where we would all gather and still even up until COVID, um, my parents are on very good terms. We could still gather as a family for, for big events and and things like that. Um, And I come from a a multicultural household. My, my dad and I are, are Turkish and food is a really central part of the way that you connect with people. And so that was just that's always been a part of my paradigm and moving into an academic space where I took a lot of nutrition and global health classes in school and learning for the first time, like the age of 19, what a food desert was or that, or what that true disparity looked like based not just in many ways on socioeconomic status, but in many ways on systemic racism and what, and how that denies for people a lot of those same things that I think everyone should have access to. Having 
a meal with family, not having to worry about when that's going to be or or where that next meal is going to come from. And that really spurred for me a deeper look into not just how we access our food, but how we grow our food. Uh, and, And that really is the second ingredient is that I've always had a very deep love and respect for the environment. I was, hmm. you know, the kid who'd play outside, get money, do all those things. And that just grew into really appreciating what that means. And I think that our food systems and agriculture can, can both harm people and the environment, but they can also be a really remarkable way to empower communities and to preserve the environment. And so those two things meshed with my personality of just being a systems thinker uh, work well for food because it gives me the opportunity to work on so many of the things that I value without necessarily having to pick because food, whether it's food systems or agriculture, really touches everything. Um, In the food justice community, it's a wheel. And you see how every single aspect, healthcare, labor, environment, everything is a part of that wheel. And so it's, it's nice to not necessarily have to pick. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. That idea of not having to pick, uh, having that, that broad, it continues to give you a lot of options. And I guess a lot of areas to explore. You're certainly right about food touching everything. I mean, it's the, (laughs) something we, uh, if, if our systems are strong can have the opportunity to overlook but something that when it's not working right and missing is that's when it becomes a lot more apparent Uh, yeah yeah your comment about overlooking is really salient and we see that a lot um you know csis we're an international think tank but we are as a program focusing on uh economic or sorry Uh, Yeah, well, economic constraints, but also disparities in U.S. food systems. COVID-19 has made that a very obvious policy priority. And for many folks in the food system, it's not like hunger in America is new. It's really not. It's Mm -hmm. now it's just an, an undeniable fact. It's very public. It's very embarrassing, to be honest. And so there's a lot of traction behind remedying this. (laughs) Not much good has come from COVID, but Mm. if it's a catalyst for people to finally act on hunger and food insecurity and inequity issues in a a really meaningful way where it's everyone, it's not just the advocacy communities who have been doing this forever. You know, I think we can count that as as a win in some ways, but there's a lot of work that still has to be done there. You were mentioning there uh, CSIS and of course that being the organization you work for and all the different issues that you focus on both internationally and here domestically, what's the biggest thing that you've learned in working for such a bipartisan nonprofit policy research organization? Communication really is such a cornerstone for (laughs) think tanks, but also on, on, on being able to iterate on key policy priorities especially in an environment like Washington that's somewhat exclusive in nature. You know, for CSIS, our audience tends to be key policymakers. And so that ends up being pretty inside the beltway. But we are iterating on issues that impact people beyond the beltway. And that point is made only through effective communication. And I, you know, we've really seen that over the last 
four plus years, how do we reconcile this widening gap between the fact that there are many things on our own soil in the United States that we need to address, that need to be policy priorities, that it's not an either or with addressing those things and being a leader in the international space, whether that is in international development and food security or humanitarian access or such and such. So that's where I think CSIS has, we're learning this as we go as well in terms of how do, how do we continue to refine the way we communicate key policy priorities with policymakers, but also with the American public that holds those policymakers accountable. And we can't just rely on the policy wonks within DC to be able to sustain that work. It matters that it's put in vehicles and terminology that is not jargony and exclusive in nature, but rather inclusive and has someone thinking about something in a new way. Um, you know, that that's something that we see brought up is here's this money that we need to be putting towards eradicating hunger in the United States. But, and I've seen this picture painted and it's very sad to see this, but instead the United States is investing all this money in international development for people that aren't even American citizens. Mm. And that's such a sad dichotomy to see because it's really not either or, mm. and very much so the way in which we engage on these issues concurrently benefits both U.S. citizens, even those that are struggling, and our ability to provide access and opportunities to folks who too should not have to be hungry. And so CSIS is able, is in a really unique place as an institution that's re regarded very highly in Washington as not being heavily partisan. We are constantly ranked as being very reliable for information because we're not an advocacy organization. It's hmm. truly just the facts. And so that, that's been the really fantastic part about being able to work on food security in this space. Um, me personally coming from a lot of grassroots organizing and other methods for being able to enhance food security in a community sense or food justice, working in a bipartisan space was, was, has been different. Um, but I think in terms of bridging the gap, it's, it's a remarkable experience and it's, it's necessary to be able to um, have those kinds of conversations and move, move the needle. Yeah, there's definitely a uh, nobility to working in that kind of organization where you're very much aimed on just the facts, especially here in the DC area or just the times that we're in of somehow everything being divisive, even the facts themselves, having some kind of places out there that at least have the reputation for the facts that are being, that they're putting out, not being agenda driven or perhaps accused of being agenda driven, just focusing on here's the issue at hand and how do we best solve it rather than how do we do it in the best way to please a party or a platform or a politician or anything like that is right. Is it's the, it's the reliability that makes a difference. And we policymakers turn to, to CSIS because one, there are a lot of experts in the building who have been a part of government and know how to communicate with government officials. Someone who has, 15 minutes to read everything that there is to know about food security to be able to make a decision on it, that information has to be packaged in a 
very specific, concise, clear way. Mm. And, and that is a skill that, you know, my, my favorite authors are Charles Dickens and Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Isabel Allende, right? These, these are folks who are kings and queens of not clear and concise language. Mm. And so being also at CSIS, that, that's something, me personally, what I've learned is communication and refining that skill and, and being able to to switch the style of communication you use depending on your audience and, and what it is that you're you're trying to get across is is really important really in any any career in any job. Right. Yeah, and you mentioned there in terms of that skill that's critical for getting the message out there. I know definitely yeah, when you're working on communicating research or trying to get a point across in space, especially here in the DC area that's so crowded from so many people with so many different issues and so many different perspectives and all that, uh, having that condensed and how do you get the message across to somebody that can't handle uh, listening to everything you have to say, because everybody's trying to do the same. Um, are there any other particular skills or I guess interests, uh, that somebody should have if they're, considering this kind of work or any advice you'd have for somebody considering it? Time management, detail orientation, and customer service communication skills are by far so important. Uh, you know, your, your content knowledge, yes, it's important. If you want to pursue a career in any space, you should work to have a good baseline understanding of what that landscape looks like. And by landscape, I mean the, the technical content, but also the other organizations that are working on these issues, what the policy priorities are and so forth. But a lot of that is absorbed on the job. It's absorbed through experiences that you put yourself, whether it's volunteering, internship, working, reading what you, what you read and digest. But these other, I guess they're referred to as soft skills. Mm. Like, uh, a little bit more time to refine. Someone who already has a really great handle on managing their own calendar, whether it's through Google Calendar, iCalendar, whatever app that exists that you utilize is so vital. Um, detail orientation, I mean, that is something that while at the catering company, oh, that was a hammered skill. And I, I think for me, it's so much easier to be detail oriented when you're really interested in something, right? And But what happens if you're in that job that you don't want to be in, or you're doing this work that you really could care less about, and your detail orientation there lacks because it's just not interesting to you? And, you know, not everything is going to be interesting to you in your job. You're not always going to want to manage budgets or to help schedule things. But so, so much of that contributes to the overall success of the organization or the mission and so forth that being able to have detail orientation down pat, regardless of whether it's your favorite thing or your least favorite thing possible, by and large makes such a massive difference. Uh, are you cool under pressure? When something does fall apart, are you the kind of person who's really rigid and thinks, I had this whole structure and it's not going to plan, now I don't know what to do? Or do you see that and go, okay, we need quick thinking, we need to resolve this, I need to contact so-and-so, I need to do such and such. And so those three skills, time management, detail orientation, and, and customer service, as it applies to flexibility and so on, are 
so, so important. And the beautiful thing about that is that can be refined in any position. It doesn't have to be a position that's smack on track with your career. Yeah, those are all definitely very important skills. Like you said, can be learned anywhere and need to be applied anywhere. And you touched on there something that I believe is really important for people to understand early in their career, which is that success looks different for different people and it's defined differently by different people and it can look like a lot of different things. And so that's something that's important to remember just uh, within the job itself as you're working on projects. And like you said, something that you could care less about, somebody else could care about. But also I feel like as people are starting off or getting into their careers, that success is kind of what you describe it to be. And it can change and be flexible with uh, the needs at the time. Absolutely. And I know you were talking there about, yeah, that detail orientedness, managing a calendar and kind of being able to balance a lot of different things at the same time. And I know from your background that you're also a yoga and fitness instructor. So for people out there that may have many different passions and are trying to do them all and like we were just talking about, be successful in many different areas. How do you balance doing that along with your day job? You know, DC is really the world of of side hustles. I know (laughs) so many folks who are are doing something like what I'm doing. Maybe it's not yoga or fitness, but, uh, you know, my, my previous boss, whom I have so much love for moved on from the catering company to, to do something that she loves. So she works at the Humane Society, but she still plans weddings on the side because she's amazing at it, but also because it's a fun side hustle for her. And, you know, DC is not cheap. <laughs> so it's good to have that money. I, I think that the key to balancing that is really making sure that pre- preventing burnout, right? How do you do it? It's hard. It's, there's not one clear cut way. Um, it might be that on one night during the actual week, I committed to not scheduling anything mm. that I could decide if someone asked me after work, do you want to grab dinner? Do you want to do this? That I would give myself time in my week to have the flexibility to be um, spontaneous. Mm. So it's, it's kind of scheduling spontaneity still, but it was my method of being able to say, okay, when I look at my calendar, I wouldn't already be overwhelmed with every waking minute being scheduled. That applies to weekends too, like Saturdays. Those are blank days. I will not schedule a Saturday. And, you know, it's it's changed a little bit in the pandemic. Right. But I think that 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 for me, it, kind of guarding my calendar in that way was super helpful for me. But I'm also, I'm a, I'm a, I'm type A. So that, that's something that <laughs> brings me a lot of joy. Having a, a, a calendar like that for someone who's not type A, it's not going to bring them the same sense of peace, probably the opposite. So it's really, it's finding what works for you there. And, you know, today, oh man, I think I, it is so important now more than ever. If you can, I know every workplace is different. Start your day at nine and end it at five. If that's mm. the kind of thing that works for you. Not everyone enjoys working that really structured traditional work hours, but that's what's worked for me. Um, that I open my laptop, I open my computer at nine. And as soon as five o'clock hits, it's closed. There's, mm. I, I'm, I'm not remembering who it is. It's been attributed to a number of different people, but there's a saying that around CSIS that there's, no such thing as a think tank emergency. 
Mm. We're not a humanitarian action organization. We're not the Red Cross. We're not the ICRC. Um, so, you know, if I don't answer an email at 5.05, it can wait until 9 a.m. the next morning. And I think for a lot of us who really take our work very seriously and have goals in mind and want to do the best every day, it's really tempting to stay on late. But I found that the the times that I, I didn't hold myself accountable to the start at nine and at five and taking an hour lunch, which is even harder, that I just wasn't coming in with the same energy and vitality that I, I wanted to show up for work for. The, the balance thing, it's ever-changing. It's going to be different. You might find a balance that works well for you for about a month. And then, I don't know, the weather changes and now it's nice outside or, or the opposite happens and, and balance will be different. So I think the the overarching thing for me in balancing that has just been a lot of self-forgiveness, <laughs> knowing that it's going to change um, and that that's okay. Growth definitely comes with its growing pains and figuring out what works for you, as well as a lot of, as you were describing there, grace in a sense of just realizing that as much as we can plan things or think we have things all figured out or are trying to strike that balance that we are still human and uh, are, yeah, just kind of, again, figuring out as we go along. So that's, yeah, I guess interesting to hear in terms of the ways that you find balance as well as what you've learned from perhaps from others in that regard as you've as you've uh, continued to figure that out here early in your career if you had to name three people or resources that have been the most influential to you who are they and what have the what impact have they had three women come to mind the first one is my mother. <laughs> she is uh, so much of what I learned about communication and presentation um, and respect for other people's time and for my time was instilled by her for me from a very young age. Um, she is a total powerhouse. And so that is something that I feel very fortunate to have that kind of relationship with my mother. She's always the first person that I would have review my essays. She's always the, my mom's, mm. she reads a lot. <laughs> and so her, her eye for detail for things like that is, is impeccable. She is um, mm. my, my same tendencies. <laughs> um, a lot of them are, are assets and gifts um, are, you know, from her, that detail orientation, this, this, desire for efficiently operating systems, a, a willingness to address a system um, that's not operating efficiently, right? So that flexibility to, to ask for change just because a system's in place doesn't mean it's the best one. Those are all things that my mom from a very young age has been, it's been something that we've been able to talk with each other about. And even today in the pandemic, I feel like I talked to her more than I ever did once I moved out here, um, being able to connect over work and this and that. Um, she's always my biggest advocate. Uh, and so that's been, that's the first person that comes to mind. The, and the other, the other women, the other is Karen Masters. She was my, one of my professors while I was studying abroad in Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. I technically didn't have the experience that was required for this program. It was a bio, um, it was a conservation biology and ecology program. And as a part of my major at GW, I didn't have to take a hard science class 
But I knew that having that experience was really vital to doing any kind of work in food security and agriculture. Um, you know, how can you work on that if you don't understand agricultural systems and the way that the environment works or doesn't? Uh, and so she took a chance on me in many ways. I had to submit additional materials and, you know, being able to learn from her. This is someone who's just dedicated her life to biodiversity in the cloud forests in Costa Rica. And I, I just, she's for so many reasons that are hard for me to articulate. She's such an incredible role model. She moved there. She pursued this degree. She mastered this language. And she's not just there as a academic, right? She's a part of the community. And that's something that I think, especially when it comes to food and for folks that want to study food systems outside of their home communities, understanding how to appropriately become a part of communities that you're not originally a part of. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's challenging work and it's, it's not always appropriate. Um, but she had a skill set that she knew was applicable to working on conservation in the cloud forest and, and helped me find a way to marry that to food systems while I was there. And so I just, I think she's the coolest person. Um, and then the last two people are the two women that I've had the pleasure of working for at CSIS. First one, Kimberly Flowers, who moved on uh, to be the executive director of the, uh, this is a long title, so I may mess it up, but I think it's the Goldfarb School of Public Policy at Colby College in Maine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And my current boss, Caitlin Welsh, who had previously worked for the National Security Council and the Global Food Security Office at the State Department. And all all of these women are powerhouses, so I'm a little bit of a a broken record here, but it's, it's really... It's really something else to be able to work for incredible women who are just so kind and compassionate, but also very much so hold their own. It's, they are fantastic examples for me as a young woman in this space of how to be a, an effective manager, but also one that is empathetic to have structure and schedule to understand what it means to contribute in a valuable way to refine writing skills, to seek out opportunities, and also to be a mentor for others. And that that's a lot. And that's not even within your own job description. So I think that being able to ha- learn from them so directly so early in my career is just such an incredible gift and something that I take very seriously. And so definitely try to carry that into conversations with people who reach out to me about jobs or, or other things like that, because having access, you know, you mentioned resources, um, really influences your own, your confidence and the, the way you approach future opportunities. And I think that if everyone had access to, to people like that, uh, especially young women, it would make such a difference in in the way that we approach opportunities and and tell our stories and try to pursue our passions. Mm, Definitely. It's amazing how much we get just from working with other people, especially those that have gone through the, uh, the follow the path before us having that kind of mentor or that kind of influences. If there were one thing that you could tell our listeners about 
work or life or anything else, what would that thing be? I'm going to steal my grandfather's saying here again and say that your education is, is never a waste. So don't worry yourself about how other people got to where you want to be too much. You know, the informational interviews are amazing. They're great. It gives you a good idea of what you might want to do next. But Mm. if some, if you're looking at a position and you're thinking, Oh, for me to be able to be there, I need to do exactly what they've done. It's not authentic. I think. And so if you can, great. And if that's something you want to pursue, awesome. But I think not to put pressure on this idea that there's just one way to get somewhere. Uh, and rather, you know, every everything that you do can be woven into your story and your narrative. It's it's really just about how you tell it. And that's the part that you have control over. Definitely, definitely important to, uh, yeah, focus on that. Well, that's just about all that I've got for you here, but where can our listeners connect with you if they'd like to hear more about your story and about the work that you're doing? Absolutely. Yeah, I am most easily reached on LinkedIn, so you can find my LinkedIn profile. I will say this is something I am um, such a broken record about. Uh, My biggest piece of advice in connecting on LinkedIn is never ever, ever, ever send a LinkedIn request to someone, especially whom you don't know, without a note about why you're connecting. A little bit of a stickler on that, but please, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, Just let me know why. (laughs) I'm happy to connect there. Okay. Yeah. And I will certainly, as always, go ahead and link to your profile down in the show notes and share as well the link to your organization. Thanks for coming on the show and for sharing your story thanks adam thank you so much for having me hey everyone thanks for tuning into today's show hopefully you learned something new about the work happening in the nonprofit sector and were inspired to get involved if you liked what you heard be sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening from if you want to learn more about today's guest how you can contact them and explore the organization they work for check out the show notes that'll do it for this episode. Come back next time to hear from yet another aspiring altruist.